This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the 24-7 National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. So this is part two of our episodes featuring, featuring, focusing on uh, borderline. I know, right? I guess that's (laughs) accurate. Uh, Focusing on um, borderline personality disorder. And the first one we were talking more about if you personally have that diagnosis. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking what it's like to have someone you love have that diagnosis. Well, less what it's like and more what DBT skills might you personally use in the context of that relationship. Uh, this is also our second monthly episode, right? It is. We're like officially into this new I was about to say reality which sounds so Cadence? intense yeah this new like rhythm of yeah. putting out episodes once a month so yeah it's second one kind of exciting <laughs> mm-hmm. uh so let's see before we dive right into it there are just a couple of disclaimers that I wanted to make for today's episode the first one, and I think you guys have listened probably to us long enough that I can share the exact phrasing that I have in my notes, because I think it'll make you giggle. I just have written down as, own your shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I had no idea until Michelle and I sat down to discuss our uh, outline and what we wanted to say in today's episode that I was going to be real stressed, real stressed by this uh, by this episode. I mean, by now, you guys have probably heard me talk on multiple occasions about the fact that my mother has borderline personality disorder. And so I was just really anxious coming into this episode. So that being the case, as I have also talked about, we are not at our most intelligent when we're <laughs> under a heavy emotional load. So this is just a, I feel at least half a bubble off plum today. So I hope everyone can extend me a little bit of grace in that regard. And the second thing that I wanted to say is that we do not intend anything that we say today to in any way shame anyone who has borderline personality disorder. Um, we know that, A, not everybody with any given diagnosis is the same. There's, uh, you know, when we were talking in our last episode about the different criteria, I know that, I don't know, Michelle or I, I don't remember which one of us, but I'm sure one or both of us talked about the fact that most people don't have all of those different symptoms and whatever you have, you have more or less uh, severity. Basically, everyone is unique. And so anytime you try and paint with a broad brush, you're going to miss some folks, um, sometimes a lot. So 
we're going to be generalizing a lot today, kind of for the purposes of being able to point out the skills that we think will work the best. And that's not to say that you, whoever you are that might be listening to, you might not resemble what we're saying in these particular moments. And so we just want to say we recognize that you're unique and we don't want to say that anybody with that diagnosis necessarily looks like what we're going to talk about today. There's a lot of wiggle room there. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that knowing that you've hurt people you love or that you've made things difficult for people you love can be a really hard thing to sit with. And so we just want to honor that and say that it's not our intent to bring in any shame or guilt. And we know that it's a possibility. And if that happens, we're sorry. Um, anything you want to add to that thought, Michelle? No, I, I think you just talked about that really well. It's a fine line between wanting to offer empathy and validation for the loved ones of someone with a BPD diagnosis, whether you have a child with that diagnosis, a parent with that diagnosis, a partner, a spouse, a friend, a sibling, whoever it is, like we want to really be offering validation to you as the loved one. And also, yeah, as you were just talking about, Kate, we don't want it to be that in offering that validation or that empathy for the difficulties that can come with being in relationship with someone with a BPD diagnosis, that then those who are listening with a BPD diagnosis then feel, yeah, a whole lot of shame or just regret and remorse and guilt and I'm this awful person and this, that, and the other. Definitely not. <laughs> um, that's that's not the experience that, that we want this episode to bring up for anybody who is diagnosed with BPD and might be listening to this episode and then reflecting on like, oh man, I've affected people close to me in my life in that way. I feel terrible about that. Um, Yeah, we don't want that experience. And I think it also might be important to say that there's opportunities for repair and making amends at Mm -hmm. every turn too. So if you do notice as you're listening to this, if you have a diagnosis of BPD and you notice some of those things coming up for you, um, that this may just be an opportunity to then recognize like okay maybe I have some repair work to do in that relationship and you can take steps to do that if you'd like but yeah we're really not wanting to focus on shaming anyone in this episode. no <laughs> yeah. cool well I guess we're ready to launch into it Michelle if you're ready yeah so we're gonna be talking about I mean of course this is DBT and me <laughs> we're gonna be talking <laughs> about DBT skills primarily throughout the episode That for those of you who are loved ones of someone with a BPD diagnosis, what can you do for yourself? And to start off with, I'm going to talk about a couple things that have nothing to do with DBT. These are not DBT (laughs) skills. (laughs) These are just concepts or ideas that may be helpful. And so these might just be some things to keep in mind. And like Kate said, we're really painting with a broad brush here very generalized guidance. So take take what you will, apply it to your own life, apply it to your relationship with your loved one and see what fits for you. But the first thing that I wanted to talk about is the drama triangle, something like that. And I did even look up the name of the person who created <laughs> it. So I, I'm not even giving credit here. So essentially the essence of this concept is that if you think about a triangle, right, there's three points. And with each of those points, essentially they represent a role that we can play. It also feels important to name that, right, we think of a triangle as three points. 
you do not need three people to get involved in a dynamic like this. You can have dynamics like this take place with only two people. That's all you need with one of with one of you playing a certain role and the other of you playing a certain role and then you're <laughs> off to the races with this idea. But there's three different roles that can be played. So the first role is the role of the victim. So this is going to look really different and unique to everyone, but generally what of the role of the victim looks like is that that is a person who wants other people to do things for them. They want to be taken care of, even in situations where they could do the thing themselves. They want other people to do it for them. They can maybe at times act a little bit helpless because they want someone to do things for them. Sometimes this is really overt. Sometimes this is really subtle. So somebody who's behaving in a passive-aggressive manner where they're maybe kind of hinting at something, but they're not communicating directly, that's one way that it can look like when somebody's in a victim role. They want, they want you to have this response that they want you to say something or do something, but they don't want to directly ask for it. They just want you to kind of figure it out. That's generally speaking what the victim role can look like. The second role is the role of the persecutor. So the person who is the persecutor... The cliche way that this can look is that that person might look rather angry or frustrated, easily irritable. Um, the persecutor can get very upset with um, when things are not going their way. They want to put blame on the people in their lives and persecute them for why something didn't pan out how they wanted it to pan out. So the persecutor can be pretty good at pointing fingers at other people and casting blame for why something is not going very well. The third role is the role of the rescuer. So the rescuer is somebody who likes to do for others. If somebody is in need of help, they want to help them. If somebody, um, yeah, I was just going to say like, I don't know, has fallen on like hard times or something. They they can be very busy doing for others and they mm. really struggle to do for themselves or to focus on their own needs because they're so busy jumping in to try to make things better for other people. Now, here's the thing about those three roles that I just named. They go in no particular order. It's not like first you play the role of the victim, then the... No. Mm -mm. Most people have a default role that they tend to to go to. So my default role, I tend to default to the rescuer. That tends to be where I hang out. Um, <laughs> Kate, are you saying you do as well? <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, so that's where I tend to go, right? Is it any coincidence that we are therapists? Probably not. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing about this triangle is that it's highly likely that you can play and you do probably play any role. You can play all three. Um, and you can go very quickly between all the rules. So it's not like for an entire day, you're the, pure, the, you're the persecutor. No, you might be the persecutor for a minute and then the next minute you're more of the victim. And it can really fluctuate with what category you could say you fall into at any given moment. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about this a little bit with this episode about people who have a loved one diagnosed with BPD 
is that it is highly likely that you and your loved one with the BPD diagnosis are playing one of these roles. Highly, highly likely. Now, the person with BPD, they may switch between different roles. Um, one day, you might very much view them as the rescuer. That The next day, they may very much be the persecutor. And again, this can go very quickly, changing between the roles. You're also likely shifting roles as well. So one of the common ways that this can look is if you're somebody who likes to rescue. And if you're trying to rescue someone and they don't want your help, let's say. You're trying to do something for them and they're like, nope, I, I got it. I don't need your help. Then it will be very easy to switch into the role of persecutor to say, well, why don't you want my help? Kind of an idea mm -hmm. to at least think that even if you're not expressing it. Why don't you want my help? And then to almost switch immediately into the role of victim of like, well, I'm just... I'm trying my best. I just, I don't know. Why will they, like, to kind of just be like, oh, I'm the one who's being hurt by them not accepting mm -hmm. my help. It can be viewed through all three of those lenses almost simultaneously. And for somebody who has a BPD diagnosis, again, I, I'm painting with broad, broad, broad strokes here. Um, they likely either fall into victim or persecutor most of the time. And you do as, and you as the loved one listening to this may more likely fall into rescuer. Um, again, this is going to be really unique to everyone. We switch roles very easily and very quickly sometimes. Those tend to be broad strokes where people might fall into. And you might see someone going back and forth between these rules really quickly, which can be very confusing. So that's just an idea or a concept to keep in mind as you're interacting with the loved one in your life who has a BPD diagnosis. Building off of what I just said about how you as the loved one may very likely fall into the rescuer category more often than not. That might be your default. Uh, it also feels important to talk a little bit about codependency before we really dive into what DBT skills may be helpful. So I don't know what, there's so much to say about codependency. <laughs> there's so much to say about it. But the general idea and concept behind it is that when you have somebody in your life who is struggling in some way, and in this case, right, we're talking about someone who has a BPD diagnosis and is going through those symptoms like we described in the last episode. You have somebody in your life, yeah, who has a mental health diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, uh, struggling with addiction, whatever it is. You have somebody in your life where their needs are maybe very big, very large. And codependency is essentially putting their needs first and foremost above and beyond your own so that your needs are consistently going on the back burner and your attention and your focus is entirely on that other person at all times. A way this can look with BPD is that um, it's even a title of a book, Stop Walking on Eggshells. And <laughs> walking on eggshells is a very common way that this can look, especially with BPD. It can look this way with addiction too, of like, I just don't want to do anything to make them angry with me. Um, or I don't want to do anything that's going to make them drink. 
or I'm viewing it as that I am responsible for their emotional reactions. I'm responsible for what decision they make next. That kind of an idea. And Kate and I are both here to say, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're not responsible for that. And it is true that there is a cause and effect that can happen, you know, when we're in interactions with other people. If Kate were to, I don't know, not that you would ever do this, Kate, but if Kate started yelling at me, for example, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, I went real extreme, but if she, if she started yelling at me, I'd probably have an emotional experience of fear. That would be a direct result of something Kate did. And also, then I am completely in charge of what I do with that feeling of fear that's arising within me. Do I use that feeling of fear to yell back at her? Do I use that feeling of fear to end the conversation and leave the room? Do I use that feeling of fear to, you know, recognize that I, I don't know, I need to take care of myself in some way? I'm in charge of what I do from there with that feeling of fear. And I bring this up because... Your loved one who has a BPD diagnosis is in charge of what they choose to do with their emotions. They may at times point the finger at you and say, well, you did this, so that's why I'm doing this thing now. And this is just an important reminder for yourself that you are not responsible for their decisions. You're not responsible for their actions. And if you recognize that you did say or do something that was hurtful in some way or that kind of a thing, you can decide if you'd like to apologize for that. And you're also not responsible for the decision that they made, if that makes sense too. Like it's, I don't know. I hope that's making sense. You look like you have something to say. I was going to say, I don't know, this has shown up for me a lot over the course of years with my own mom. Um, and one of the ways that I know my, my own therapist uh, tackled, well, not how she tackled, but one of the things she tackled with me a lot was a thing like, I don't know, for instance, if my, if I was like, hey, I, I don't know, to my mom, if I said something and her response was like, if you do that thing, then I'm going to blank, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the thing is, that then I would feel like I was causing blank, right? That. Like, well, I, if I make this action, then I'm choosing f- to have my mom do this thing, right? Because she's already told me that's going to be the consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit more vague with just, I know my mom well enough that if I do this, she's likely to respond in this fashion, whatever. But same idea, right? And it's, it was, I don't I'd say was like it's in the past. I still struggle with it. It is something that's hard for me to recognize that, no, 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 just because she said she'll do that if I do this thing doesn't mean I'm responsible for her doing that. That's still how she's choosing to respond yes. to whatever I'm doing. Like, I'm not making the decision for her to, I don't know, my, my brain keeps going to the extreme of, like, kill herself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know there's smaller things that she's talked about plenty over the years but right like i'm not making her do anything just because she's laid out her intended consequence or her intended course of action doesn't mean i'm responsible for that course of action right she's still choosing what she's doing and which is interesting because in a sense i'm weirdly taking away her agency by assuming responsibility for those things um but also it makes me feel 
it's a heavy burden, right, to have this idea of, well, this is an action I need to take for my own health or my own well-being or, mm -hmm. you know, to set a boundary or whatever. But because I know how this person is going to respond, either intuitively, in which case air quotes need to go around the word no, um, or because they've said, you know, this is what I'm going yeah. to do. It can be really hard to separate yourself from that and stop feeling like you're choosing that thing mm -hmm. by choosing to do your thing. Yeah. There's a lot of vagueness, and I apologize for not having more <laughs> concrete wording for the things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I struggle with that a lot, and I'm certainly aware of that yeah. in my relationship with my mom. No, I think I think you talked about that really well. And it's something, too, where in what you were sharing and a little bit of what I was saying talking about it, too, there can really be when our decisions and our, our, our actions and our choices are coming from a codependent place this emphasis on prevention. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get this other person to not do this thing. Like for you, yep. Ooh, I don't want my mom to do that thing. So how do I prevent it? Yep. You know, I don't want this person to get upset with me. How do I prevent it? I don't want this person to go out and get high. How do I prevent it? That really becomes the focus. And it's a fallacy because we can't, prevent or stop people from doing things <laughs> a lot of the time like if they've made the decision that this is what they're going to do you know there are so many other factors and thoughts and feelings within that other person that go into their decision making that we we are not responsible for and a lot of times literally cannot impact but we can drive ourselves crazy trying and fooling yeah. ourselves into thinking if I just do this thing different then they will do this then they will behave differently in the way that I want them to behave and you're just gonna drive yourself bonkers trying yep. to do that song and dance of like if I do this then they'll do that a lot of times it doesn't work that way even when they tell you it it can or it does sometimes or you know that just gets yep. you into this song and dance of like, now I have to do what they say. Sort of an idea. Yep. Or, yeah, I'm responsible for their choices. Yep. yep. Same idea. Yeah. So okay. I think that's all I um, want to say about that. Yeah. I was going to say the way um, Michelle and I had kind of conceived to break this episode down was basically to think of skills that are useful before an interaction with a loved one with BPD, skills that might be helpful or useful during an interaction, especially a difficult interaction um, with someone, uh, loved one with BPD, and then some skills that can be useful after um, a difficult interaction with a loved one with BPD. So I'm going to start off with before. Yeah, the before. The before times. Sorry. No, um... <laughs> Stuff you can do when, I don't know, I want to say like when... Anticipating something? Yeah. Like yeah. things are things are calm, you're at baseline, things are going well. Yeah. That kind yep. of an idea. Yeah. Yep. And again, you know, you know, well, here you go. Well, we'll get to so many different things in time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so fried today. Uh, so let's go with the first one, which is effective rethinking and paired relaxation. Um, well, this is something, Michelle, I didn't know how much we want to explain the thing, but more or less with the, this idea is I personally know that I can get very, 
like in my own head around potential interactions with my mom. I can, in fact, find myself imagining it going into the worst possible way. Um, and or, you know, I'm certainly aware of the fact that with some regularity, my interactions with my own mom aren't very skilled. So something I can do to both combat my anxiety to an extent looking towards an event and also help myself be more likely to be calmer, more emotionally stable, you know, just have less of a difficult time once I get to that interaction is the effective rethinking impaired relaxation. So that would, you know, not to deep dive into what the skill is, because you can go back and listen to that episode. But it's basically trying to shift our thoughts um, around how we respond to a thing and pair that with relaxing our body, right? So that's going to help bring down our anxiety. And by practicing more effective ways of thinking about the scenario or during the scenario, it can really help to prepare us to be at our most skilled um, during that actual interaction. And Michelle, it's hilarious. I like effective rethinking and paired relaxation. But as I'm talking about this, I think, you know, I think perhaps what I actually meant to have there was cope ahead. Um, anyway. <laughs> 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 they definitely have a lot of crossover. Right. So both of those, I think, serve similar purposes in this particular yep. regard, right? Which is prepping yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Imagining things going well, doing things to help relax your body so that you're less tense in a situation, right? Um, in Michelle's wording, more bottom-up stuff, right? How do we keep our bodies at more of a baseline when we're going into this uh, interaction and just, yeah, help us, for lack of a better word, visualize. I don't do that, but right. Imagine it going better so that we have essentially rehearsed it going well, which gives us a better chance of having it going well once we get there. And I'm, I'm going to interrupt just briefly. Please, and we, no, we talk about this a lot. I was just going to ask you for what you, what you were going to say more. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we talk about this a lot. I think when we talk about both cope ahead and effective rethinking impaired relaxation, especially with cope ahead. You can't make the other person do it well? Yes. This is not about imagining <laughs> your loved one with BPD responding how you want them to. No, Imagine them no, responding how they normally do. Yep. Yes. Warts and all. How do they typically respond? And then imagining as, yeah, as you're saying, Kate, like, how do you want to respond? So I think that just becomes an important reminder that we do talk about in those episodes. But just a refresher, this is not about imagining rainbows and sunshine and a perfect interaction taking place. No. Imagine a realistic interaction taking place and just what you want to do differently within yourself. I like that. But here I can actually bring a concrete example. Um, one thing that my mom is very prone to do is find some way to have the end of an interaction be a fight. I think it helps her feel more okay in a weird way about separating, right? Like it's okay for our time together to end because we're mad at each other or something like that. And so that's something where, yeah, it wouldn't do me a, a damn lick of good to sit around daydreaming about my mom not doing that yeah <laughs> then you're gonna feel um, really unprepared when it happens yes, right and just more disappointed and more dysregulated and yeah. more upset when it happened right it's actually setting myself up for more emotional difficulty in the moment um instead it would be like all right so mom tends to want to pick some sort of fight before leaving on average that tends to be that she just keeps asking for more things until you have to say no and then she can get mad at you for saying no so all right 
assuming mom does that, because she typically does, how, how can I interact in that situation so that it's less upsetting for me, so that I remain more emotionally regulated, right? Like, it's all, it's all about me uh, in that regard, um, while I assume that my mom moms, as she typically does. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I mean, at that point, you, you're, you're at least, I don't know, you might, no, there's a non-zero chance of being pleasantly surprised if you imagine them behaving the way they usually do, and yeah. you behaving better, um, but you're setting yourself up much more likely for disappointment if you imagine them behaving suddenly and dramatically differently than usual, because that doesn't usually happen. So yeah, good reminder, Michelle, thank you. You're welcome. The other one is bigger <laughs> and slightly less concrete, uh, which is radical acceptance, right? And I think that actually pairs well, Michelle, with your little reminder around effective rethinking and also cope ahead. Um, your the, the, the wrong way to do those two skills <laughs> is kind of a form of I don't know, anti-radical acceptance, right? Like, yeah. it's the opposite of radical acceptance. It's a, I'm going to pretend that my loved one is suddenly going to be dramatically different for no apparent reason, right? I'm not going to accept how reality has been and likely will be. Nope, I'm going to pretend um, that suddenly this isn't the case, right? So, yeah, not helpful. Radical acceptance is hard. I'm sure Michelle and I, Michelle and I both say that we think it's the hardest DBT skill out there. So I don't want this to sound trivial or easy or light. And also I think it can be incredibly healing in a mm -hmm. sense to just accept it, right? To just go, all right, this is, right? Yep. Now that I know that this is, how can I best take care of me in the context of this reality? Um, now, that's not, that's also not saying that, I don't know, but apparently I'm feeling a little bit like I have to emphasize this, so bear with me. But it's not saying that the person with BPD is incapable of change, right? I know I was saying that people are unlikely to suddenly and dramatically change, and I do think that's still true. But it's perfectly, you know, plausible that over time they shift and change, and that's a lovely thing, right? And then you can radically accept the new them later, <laughs> maybe with slightly, you know, easier. But, right, you just, there's a letting go and a grief, I think, Um I know that that can be the case for a person receiving the diagnosis as well, but also when it's your loved one, right? To just be like, I don't know. For me, there's a lot of grief about the kind of mom my mom couldn't be. Um, uh, right? There's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hardship, right? And it's likely to come, um, Michelle was talking about this actually in our live group the other day. It's likely that you have to radically accept repeatedly, <laughs> and yeah. different layers, right? You'll think you've radically accepted it all, and then you'll be like, nah, except for that part that was hiding in the corner under the bed, right? I still have to radically accept that one. So it's it's not a short process. It's not an easy process. And also, I think it, in many ways, is a maybe not necessary foundation or necessary starting place, but damn near. Right? It's awfully hard to cope with a thing you don't accept is. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, and I think when when you're able to get to a place of radical acceptance with who your loved one is and what aspects of BPD they struggle with and how that shows up for them, 
then I think going back a little bit to what I was talking about with the triangle stuff, when you can truly radically accept that, you're not going to be playing any of those three roles um, because you're not going to be persecuting them and getting upset with them for the behaviors that they show. I mean, again, radical acceptance does not mean approving or liking. <laughs> we emphasize no. that a lot in the radical acceptance episode, but it's it's going to be that rather than like getting upset with them that they're just not doing what you want them to do and behaving how you want them to behave you may be less likely to experience that as often or to the same degree. You're not maybe going to um, be playing the role of the victim as much where it's like, you know, woe is me having this person with a BPD diagnosis in my life because you will have just accepted that. And a radical acceptance, I love that you touched on the grief aspect. There's a lot of yep. grief that can come <laughs> when we radically accept something and so it can be really easy to play that victim role of like, well, why did this happen to me that I, you know, have a child with this diagnosis or I got a mom with this diagnosis or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But if you can just kind of accept it, then you're less likely to try to rescue them and you're, you're just less likely to get involved in that dynamic because you're going to be coming from a place of health of just like, this is what they are struggling with currently. And yeah, as you said it, Kate, this is I think is, you're like pairing radical is. acceptance and differentiation, which go yes. well together. They do go well together. Don't yep. necessarily imply the other. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We're less likely to be taking responsibility yeah. for someone else when we've let go of thinking that we can change them. When we're still holding yes. on to that belief Ooh, that I we like can that. change them, yeah. <laughs> we're not radically accepting things. We're yep. not. I like that way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I touched on yours right, quite I think a bit. That's what I um, have for those ones. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on mine as well. So interrupt me at any time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but moving ahead to two skills that we think could be helpful when you are in the middle of a difficult interaction with your loved one. So. The thing that Kate and I really wanted to emphasize this episode throughout is that I think sometimes when you have a loved one in your life who's received a BPD diagnosis, the emphasis that you may want to put on things is how do I get them to change? How do I get them to be less emotionally reactive? How do I make these really challenging interactions better? Well, that's falling into a codependent place. So we're not emphasizing that here. So I know it can be tempting though. Like when you're in these, when you're in these conflicts to just be like, well, how do I just make it stop Michelle and Kate? Like, I just don't want it to happen at all. Right? Like, how do I stop it? We're here to tell you that that is it's too lofty of a goal. Yeah, I was really? going to say, other than walking away and forever, I don't know, right? There's not much you mm -hmm. can do to prevent or, yeah, completely yeah. get rid of difficulty. Yep. Yeah, and it may be something, again, if you're working with an individual therapist who can really, who gets to know you and your life and your situation more specifically, they might be able to give some more pointed guidance than what we're giving here. But really, the two things that I'm going to talk about are things that you get to do differently within yourself so that you get to make a shift no matter how your loved one is behaving or what they're doing in these in the middle of these really difficult moments. 
So, in no particular order, though <laughs> arguably maybe the first one is easier, <laughs> uh, Kate and I really like the stop skill when it comes to conflict and difficulties. This comes with a caveat, I think, that I will say. Um, I'm, I'm speaking really generally here. <laughs> but someone with a BPD diagnosis will likely have a reaction when you use this skill. I'm, yes. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, because as a reminder, the letters stand for stop, take a step back, observe, observe mindfully? mindfully, no, observe no. and proceed mindfully. I think ah, I didn't refresh right? my memory on this beforehand. I know. Now I even feel silly about it. The I'm first two things though are stop and take a break or take a step back. Take a break. Take a break. Take a break. That's how I imagine it looking. No, you and... have a break. Yep. Observe and proceed mindfully. Okay. Cool. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and someone with a BPD diagnosis, I mean, anyone, right? BPD diagnosis or not may have a reaction to those things. Someone with a BPD diagnosis may especially have a reaction to those things. If you mm -hmm. stop engaging with them and you take a step back, that for them, we talked about this in the last episode, a really common symptom, you could say, of BPD is to have, like, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Yep. This may feel like abandonment to them, despite your best efforts to reassure them, I'm going to go in the other room for five minutes, and then I will come back. They may still have a big response. So I'm saying that as a disclaimer here so that you're not taking on that responsibility for yourself if and when that does happen. Because this is a super important skill for somebody who has a loved one with BPD. Because what can often happen is that they, <laughs> they want you to stay engaged with them. They, like you were saying, Kate, with your mom, mm -hmm. as things are maybe ending, then she tries to create this situation where, you know, she starts asking you for things or starts an argument or, or that kind of a deal. They want you to stay engaged. And sometimes that may be an, a, an appropriate response or that may be something where you feel in a place of health in order to continue to have the conversation and that kind of a thing and to stay with them. My guess is more than likely what's probably happening is that when they are really trying to get you to engage with something, when they are really upset with you, when they are having a big emotional reaction to you, you're probably getting a little triggered <laughs> because that's what <laughs> we're hardwired to do when some, like, <laughs> that's our brain doing its thing of, like, danger, danger, danger. This person is, you know, mad or whatever it is. And now what? And so if you sense within yourself that you're having a physical reaction, you're starting to sweat, your heart's speeding up, all of that, you want to use stop before you go further with the conversation. It's just, it's just going to spiral downwards. I was going to say, before really you start gloom, being but... the persecutor or the rescuer or the, right before you step into that triangle. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yep. yep. <laughs> because chances are, in moments of conflict with someone with BPD, they're more than likely playing the persecutor or the victim role most of the time. Mm-hmm. And exactly as you just said, Kate, you want to make sure that you're not falling into the rescuer role or victim or persecutor yourself, because you can be at risk of falling into either of those roles also. So stop is important. It really is important. And a lot of times it might look like physically leaving the space that you're in. It's going to be a lot harder to just kind of mentally do this if you're still in the situation. That's going to be harder. So I encourage you to communicate with your loved one what doing stop looks like for you. Especially if they have um, some working knowledge of DBT, if they are aware of what this skill is, you can maybe even use that. Of just like, I'm going to use the stop skill right now. I'm going to come back in 10 minutes. I think it's important if you can to be specific about where you're going and when you're coming back. So, and then to follow through on your word. Or if you need more time to tell them, hey, I thought I would only need five minutes. I'm realizing I need five more. I'll come back in five more minutes. And to have that good open communication about what you're doing is really important. And you still probably need to take a step back to just take care of yourself and to regain your own footing. Um, Not that everyone with BPD goes to this place. I really want to put a disclaimer on what I'm about to say. Not everyone with BPD goes to this place. And with or without a BPD diagnosis, people can go to this place. Um, So this is not just... BPD exclusive in any way, shape, or form, but like you do not need to subject yourself to verbal abuse. You do not need to subject yourself to potential threats of physical violence. You don't, nope. <laughs> if, if that is where the person you're engaging with is going or how they are reacting to you, you stop. Um, any thoughts on that, Kate, before I go on to the next one? I, it's sort of vague, so you might have to help me flesh it out a little bit, but just a precaution, I guess, maybe, that when you're doing stop, you're actually doing stop and not just shutting down. Ooh, yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially if you're trying to do the mental form of take a step back. <laughs> Because I know for me, um, with my most difficult interactions with my mother, when there seemed to be no correct emotional response, like you didn't want to add to the high emotionality that was already there. Also, your own emotions could often, your own, my own emotions could often get used against me, things like that. And so I would just very much shut down, right? It looked like going flat affect, right? And Mm -hmm. from the outside, I say flat affect, but it just... I, I might, I probably look very calm. <laughs> Inside, you're a wreck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I, I, it's not a lot, and I, 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 but just make sure that, right, you're actually getting into a mindfulness kind of place, right, because the last one is proceed mindfully, right? Don't, don't walk away and ruminate, don't stay put and shut down. Like, there's, I think, some things that can masquerade a little bit as being stop, but aren't. Mm-hmm. And yep. so that would be my one precaution there. I really like and that yeah, you be said ready that. for be ready for the person to have a big response because, yeah, yep. walking away is not, is 
pretty likely to not be terribly well received. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause it feels like it's, you know, to, to validate why, you know, for a lot of folks uh, with BPD, there's a lot of, um, Oh, you were saying it earlier today, Michelle. Um, uh, abandonment stuff. Attachment. Anxious attachment. Uh, attachment yeah. wounds, right? Mm-hmm. And so, especially when they're already in a really heightened emotional state, anything that can be perceived as rejection, like boundary setting or walking away, mm-hmm. can trigger a pretty huge response. Mm-hmm. And so, also, if you're literally walking away, be prepared to defend that space, potentially. Yep. Yeah. So. Yep. And it could be something where, you know, when... Um, depending, right? Know your situation, know your loved one, know yourself, take this or leave this. It can be something too, where if you really want to intentionally start using this more, that you can have a conversation when things are calm. Mm -hmm. That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. I've noticed this within when we're, you know, having an argument or when there's conflict between us, that this is this is how I tend to respond and I'm wanting to work on responding differently. So this is something I'm going to start trying in the future and giving them that heads up. The, the more communication you can have with someone mm-hmm. with a BPD diagnosis, um, the better. So, and again, they still may have big reactions in the moment. That's very possible. And also you've made an effort to communicate and that's all you can do. So, yeah. Um, but I really like that you talked about that, Kate, because I think sometimes with STOP, there can be a lot of emphasis, emphasis on the S and the T. Yep. And when you are talking, you are really emphasizing the O and the P of like, yep. you have to make sure the O and the P are in place or else you're not doing it. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. Stopping and taking a step back are just the first piece of the equation. So, yep. yeah. 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 Uh, So building off of the proceed mindfully piece of stop, the second skill that we thought of that's really important during conflict is to be in your wise mind. Much easier said than done. Hopefully, if you are using stop, when you take that step back and when you are observing, then you are able to maybe access your wise mind a little bit. This may be something that plays a role in the stuff that you're doing before that Kate already talked about. If you're doing cope ahead, if you're doing effective rethinking and paired relaxation, all of that is exercising your wise mind muscle. All of that to help get you into this place where you're going to be less reactive. And I also really liked, Kate, that a moment ago you emphasized the piece about shutting down. Yeah. Because fight, flight, or freeze, the freeze is real. And when we're in an interaction with somebody and if they have really big, (laughs) big responses, it can either bring that big response out of us, right? The fight, (laughs) or it can really just cause us to super freeze up, um, can be common ways that that looks. So when you're able to access your wise mind and be in touch with your wise mind, then you are hopefully going to be more likely to respond in a way that feels, I was going to say feels good to you, but I want to get more specific than that. Authentic? Yeah, authentic. That I feel like it honestly really relates to like your own self-respect. Yeah. Like oh, a feeling of like taking alignment care with your values. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that kind of an idea. More than just like, oh, this feels good because it's really freaking hard to be in wise mind and right not good (laughs) yeah yeah there we go and again the the interaction this is not about 
decreasing conflict with your loved one with BPD. Like, that's not what this is about. If that's that's a side effect that happens, fantastic. And also, this is about you being able to be in these interactions in a way that, yeah, is you taking care of yourself and yeah, feels more authentic to you and not just like you're falling into this maybe victim mentality of like, oh, the person with BPD is just persecuting me and I can't do anything about it. Not true. You can find ways to take care of yourself. Yes, Kate. Um, I want to, so my, my only, well, my only, my two personal uh, experiences with loved ones with BPD fall into the parent and sibling categories um but with the parent especially i do just want to acknowledge validate something like that um learned helplessness Mm, yes right because a lot of this especially if you have a parent right you formed the norms for your interactions with that person when you were young enough that your brain was literally still forming considerably. And so it's a different, again, this is not to diminish, not to say it's worse than having a child or having a spouse or anything like that. Not, not a comparison in that it is different. And one of the ways that's different is that this person helped to assemble your brain. Uh, (laughs) And so there can be a sense that because you were helpless in a lot of ways as a child in the face of these behaviors, it can be really hard to learn in the first place. And then also to remember uh, when in conflict that you're not helpless now. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to put that kind of, yeah, I love that. The other thing that I'll really emphasize with the wise mind piece is, you know, when it comes to wise mind, I really want to encourage you to think about what it looks like to be in your wise mind in general, not just to think about what does it look like when I'm in my wise mind with my loved one who has BPD, not just that, but to just get to know your wise mind as a whole. What does it look like when you're in your wise mind with other people? What does it look like when you're in your wise mind at work? What does it look like when you're in your wise mind when you're engaging in your hobbies? What what does it just look and feel like to be in your wise mind setting aside the relationship that you have with the person who has a BPD diagnosis? Just get to know your wise mind in general. And then when you kind of cultivate this relationship with your wise mind and when you're doing things in your life where you feel in a wise mind place, then it may be more likely to show up in these types of interactions. Arguably, these types of interactions may be the hardest place for (laughs) you to make wise mind choices for a while, um, mm-hmm. you know, just generally speaking for, you know, Kate and Kate and I talk about this sometimes we could do a lot of like individual DBT work. It's the interpersonal effectiveness stuff that can sometimes really get us and be really challenging. And I find for myself that sometimes it's hardest to stay in my wise mind when I'm in interactions with other people. It's just harder. There's just more going on. There's more to process. There's more to juggle. <laughs> so just get to know your wise mind as a whole um, and leave out maybe for now putting expectations on yourself of how you want it to show up with your loved one. Just get to know it outside of that 
and then see how it may transfer over kind of organically or naturally when you're using your wise mind in lots of other situations. So, yeah. I like that. I would also just sort of add on a gentle reminder that being in your wise mind doesn't mean you're not angry, doesn't mean you're not mm-hmm. hurting, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're not disappointed. Doesn't right? It's not like you switch into wise mind and suddenly you're like, I feel happy and at one with the universe and all is well. Or I don't <laughs> feel anything. A lot of people think oh, that with yeah. their wise yep. mind. If I'm in my yeah. wise mind, I'm not going to feel anything. And that is not true. That's not you true. in your reasonable no. mind. <laughs> yeah, you can be in your wise mind and still be pretty miserable. So both, A, don't expect that. And Part of why I don't expect that is so that you don't think you're failing at wise mind, right? Like, you might be like, well, I was trying to get into my wise mind, but I just felt awful no matter what. Like, well, maybe you were just feeling awful because there was stuff there that yep. feeling awful is a, was a reasonable response to. So, yep. like. <laughs> yeah. And what do you decide to do with the awful? Yep. Yeah. That's way more about what wise mind is than stopping feeling it. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know, just a gentle reminder there. Yeah, I love that reminder. Okay, moving on to your next stuff. Yeah, after. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I'm actually going to talk about these in opposite order than I wrote them down, because Michelle and I had a little bit of a back and forth about this one, which I have checked the facts as one of the skills for using after um, a conflict or whatever form of difficult interaction you might have had with your loved one. Uh, and Michelle was like, really after? And I was like, well, all right, reasonably, you could shove this one anywhere <laughs> to an extent. Check the facts all the time. All the checking the facts. <laughs> all, no, and it was like, always. No, right? So you could do it ahead of time, right? As a gentle reminder. Okay, what are the actual facts of this situation? Right. All right. I can kind of lay it down. Maybe I even know the way that my loved one tends to challenge these facts so I can kind of really be in there and hang on to it and prep this way. Um, I do think that if you're trying to do this during the difficult interaction, you're going to have to do a truncated and entirely internal version. The what do I actually know? I was going to say, but BP, yeah, what do I actually know? Exactly. Our little, because I, I don't care BPD or not. If I was in anybody in conflict i don't know i don't think most people would respond well to pause for a moment i have a worksheet right <laughs> it's just not normally space for that maybe that's something you can do while you're on your break with doing stuff i don't know but most of the time not so the, one of the reasons that i put it at the as part of the aftercare if you will for a difficult interaction is because you can really sit you have time Right? You're more likely to get uninterrupted time and space to really sit and do a thorough version of this. And just like you might use it beforehand to kind of get a grip on reality before going into a situation, I think it can be really important to use check the facts to come back to reality. Right? Um, again, I'm going to speak purely from personal experience that my mom challenged my sense of reality a lot, right? Um, About myself, right? Who she saw me as, which was very different than the person that I saw myself as or knew myself to be. Um, Stories about our relationship and our history that were different from what I, right? Like there was a lot of stuff that, yeah, was really off. So I would, it would be really difficult sometimes for me to take time and space to come back to like, all right, wait, what, what really is real? 
here. Um, and so I think check the facts can be useful in that regard. And I think it's the most useful afterwards because it's sort of a regrounding, right? A coming back to what is real and what you know, right? It can be a way to, but you, uh, you know what? The more I talk, the more I think of it as a way, in a sense, to come back to yourself. Hmm. Um, right? Because there's a lot of stuff in these sorts of conflicts that can kind of pull you away from yourself, pull you away from knowing yourself. Um, can be, make you question, yeah, yourself, your history, your relationship, reality as you know it. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be why I would put emphasize check the facts as an afterwards thing, despite the fact that it technically could be utilized in any three of those spaces. Um, but yeah, just, just as a way to, to come back, in a sense. Do you have anything you want to add to that one, Michelle? I was just thinking of it too, because check the facts places so much emphasis on really being mindful about the choice of words. Mm. So mm -hmm. it can be really tempting to exaggerate things or to minimize things mm -hmm. e either way. I just kind of like, and then they exploded at me. <laughs> Wait, hold on. How can I phrase that a little more objectively? Yeah. <laughs> sort of sort of an idea. And so I think this can also be a good thing to do after the fact because it can help when you can just get a little more objective. What did I say or do? What did they say or do to make sure that, like, again, you're not accidentally persecuting or painting out your loved one to be, like, the villain or painting yourself out to be perfect <laughs> because neither are true. <laughs> yeah. So I think it can just also, that can also maybe be a good practice that can help bring it back to wise mind a little bit too. When I was we just going to say it's a mindfulness like practice in its own way in that yeah. sense, which is coming back to observable reality as yes. opposed to like, cause to say they exploded is a totally, I mean, I get it. I've probably even said that at some point in my life. Sure. So I'm not trying to nitpick your use of everyday language, usually. Um, but when you're trying to engage in these skills, right, you'd be like, That's well, what not the fuck does that even mean? Like, yeah, exploded is vague. I mean, it doesn't mm -hmm. actually say anything. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's very, haha. Um, -ha. I'm, I'm so excited that I'm this like the second time recently I've found a place to use this word. It's a dysphemism. What is that? It's a euphemism, but the opposite direction. A euphemism is something that makes something sound better than it is. A dysphemism oh. is something that makes something sound worse than it is. So, for instance, instead of like, I don't know, a psychiatric care facility, if you were to call it a loony bin, mm. that's a dysphemism. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so to say someone exploded, I mean, if someone around you literally exploded, one hopes you're not doing check the facts. Go seek ye a trauma therapist. I don't know. Like Call human bodies exploding would be messy and awful and totally different than interpersonal <laughs> conflict. Right? So you don't mean it literally. The person did not explode. Yeah. God fucking hopes. Right? Yep. <laughs> so it's a dysphemism for mm -hmm. what actually happened, which might be they their raised got their louder. voice and accused me of whatever. Right? Like, yep. Or not even so, maybe even they accused me of accused, it, just but like said that I then they this. said blah yeah. blah blah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it takes a lot of work to really do check because the facts. That's why you redo, right? You revise and revise and revise yep. to come closer and closer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I like that too, Michelle. That's a good point to see. Like it's a way of bringing yourself back to a mindful space as you try harder and harder or you try to get it closer and closer 
to yeah. objective yeah. reality. Mm-hmm. I, I hope none of you have ever seen a person explode. Just put that out there. Goodness. Yikes. Right? Watch yourself ah, but I, can't, I can't picture it, so. <laughs> um. Lucky you. Safe. Um. <laughs> Uh, all right. And so the other skill, which is probably arguably other than mindfulness, which is my favorite just thing kind of in the world in many regards, um, other than houseplants, the my other favorite DBT skill is definitely self-soothe with the five senses. And that's another one that I think of as being really good aftercare, right? If you've just had a really hard interaction with someone that you love like take care of you right be tender with yourself right just be just being really kind does a few different things like a just physiologically all the self-soothing stuff right that's very um again bottom up kind of things you're helping your body feel safe and calm and comforted and that will help you feel better but the other thing that self-soothing does is I don't want to phrase that. You are treating yourself as important by choosing to do those things. Mm-hmm. And that can be an important reminder depending on the particular conflict tactics uh, that may be used by your loved one. Um, there might be a lot that... Alright, I just feel silly trying to make it more generalized my mom would often do things that would make me feel very bad about myself right the results see ha make me god damn it if i was as good about language as i wanted to be well i wouldn't be correcting myself nearly as often i don't even know where i was going with that the uh doesn't make me feel anything right the results of our conflicts often is that i leave them feeling worse about myself right feeling worthless even sometimes or very guilty or very full of shame or a lot of things like that and so Doing self-soothing is a way to remind yourself of your own worth, of your own importance. Uh, You know, it may not be doing that on a super, like, I don't know, deliberate or conscious level. You know, not be like, I'm going to make myself cocoa and snuggle up in this blanket because I'm worth it. (laughs) It may not be that kind of thought process that's going on, but the action conveys that. And that can be a helpful even subconscious reminder um, that you do have worth, that you do have value, that you are important, that you matter. Um, And so, yeah, I would say check the facts is the more brainy uh, recovery tactic. Um, And self-soothing is the much more body (laughs) uh, recovery tactic is what I would say. Anything to add to that one, Michelle? Um, the only other thing that came up for me that I think can be important is that, and this is true of conflict generally speaking, this is not just related to conflict with someone with BPD, this is conflict with anyone, <laughs> is mm-hmm. even sometimes when the conflict is done, like let's say the two of you are not physically in that interaction anymore, the other person may not be ready to be quote unquote over it. They may still, in a way, um, be 
having a response to you. They may be like, well, I need space still the rest of the night or whatever. Or like, you can just oh, maybe yeah. sometimes no, almost sense like... I sometimes need space after a conflict for a while before yeah. I get re-regulated. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it can come from a pretty loving place where the two of you might be, again, like just recognizing, hey, we need some space. Sometimes the air may still be fraught with tension of like, yeah, we're not yelling at each other anymore. And also this still does not feel finished <laughs> and that kind of a thing. And I just think that that can be a really lovely opportunity to use the self-soothe mm, is that mm -hmm. even if the other person is still upset, even if there may still be some unresolved business, that this is still really important to do. And that it may actually help in terms of just, I don't know, right? Your own your own recovery from whatever conflict happened. Mm -hmm. And when you feel in a better place emotionally, that that potentially can help ease a little bit of that tension. And that you also don't have to just wait on the other person to be ready or okay before you give yourself permission to do this. Like, I would actually maybe encourage you to do this while the other person is still not ready or okay. <laughs> like, you can, <laughs> you can do this for you while they're yep. dealing with their own stuff, being their own human over there, sorting through things in their own way. You can still take care of yourself while that process is going on. I like it. Yeah, cool. Anything All right. we didn't cover that we suddenly realized we want to add? <laughs> no, I think we did a good job. I just maybe will briefly recap before I do awkward self-promotion. So okay. when things are calm between you and your loved one with BPD, we recommend that that's a good opportunity to use effective rethinking and paired relaxation, cope ahead, radical acceptance, that those are the skills we recommend then. In the middle of a conflict, it can be helpful to use stop and wise mind. And then when the conflict is done in the aftermath of maybe a difficult interaction, we recommend checking the facts and self-soothing. The other thing that I'll say, in addition to just, I mean, recapping what we spoke about today, <laughs> is that on Monday, we released a Q&A episode that was exclusively about listener questions from listeners who have a loved one diagnosed with BPD and all different types of relationships, right? Like whether, you know, we had one about someone where it was their partner. We had one about someone where it was their child, like that kind of a thing. So if you're like, hey, yeah, I do have someone close to me with a BPD diagnosis. I really want to learn more. Like this stuff is great that you guys talked about. And also give me more. <laughs> if you have not already listened to that Q&A episode, this would be a really good one to listen to if you do fall into this category and if you're in this boat of having a loved one diagnosed with BPD. Good stuff in the Q&A episode from this week. Okay. Awkward self-promotion. Awkward self-promotion. Yep. Um, so last monthly episode, we had like four new patrons that we listed at the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we just threw them all in there because we wanted them to get their shout outs. We don't have any new patrons this week, but we do just want to say thank you for all the people who continue to support the work that we're doing on the podcast. Thank and you. if you want to, yeah, thank you. 
And if you were to become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash dbt and me and you can, you know, get a shout out in our next monthly episode. Yay! So exciting. Um, <laughs> also, check out our Etsy shop. I'm just going to Etsy.com and searching for dbt and me so you can see what we have on there if you haven't done so already and give us a rating or write us a review on apple Podcasts if that's where you listen and last but not least because we tend to always put it last most of the time we put it last that's true <laughs> email us dbtmepodcast at gmail.com we have so much great content coming up for future q a episodes and also i mean getting emails is awesome Fun. It's yes. fun. We love it. So, yeah, send us emails as well. Okay. Yeah, no real homework other than maybe give these things a try in those contexts, I exactly. guess. Exactly, right? yeah. Give these things a try if this this stuff applies to you. And, I mean, some of the stuff we're talking about today, I realized as we were going through it, I think a lot of this stuff can apply to just... <laughs> Any conflictual relationship you might have or difficult yep. relationship. Yeah. Yep. Doesn't have to be with someone who has a BPD diagnosis. This stuff can serve you well regardless <laughs> so try try some of this out and like we say you know pick one pick one yeah. pick somewhere to start and try it out and see see what it does for you and how it feels all right awesome closing okay. moment yes let's do it okay awesome <sighs> all right so take a second to just get comfortable whatever that means for you in this moment and in your body right now be sitting, standing, laying down, walking around, whatever is right. And if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, I invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. As always, we're going to begin by just tuning into our breath. You don't have to breathe any more slowly or any more deeply than you do naturally. It's just about paying attention. It's about noticing the sensations and the rhythms of our breath and letting those welcome us into the present moment and into our bodies. So to begin with, I'd like you to bring to mind an image of a loved one. Now, this can either be a loved one with BPD, as we've been talking about in this episode, or just someone else you love, but with whom you have difficulty. History of conflict or something else that makes that relationship fraught for one reason or another. And just take a moment to see them standing in front of you in your mind's eye. While you're building that image, I just want to introduce to you the idea that we are all doing our best. You are doing your best, I am doing my best, and your loved one is doing their best. Best doesn't have to look like good. On some days, our best can look downright shitty, and that's okay. Because we're human. 
Again, you're human. I am human. Your loved one is human. And so we all have those days. But even on those days, it's important to remember that we're doing our best. And that everyone we're interacting with is doing their best, too. And so, as you have this image of this loved one standing in front of you, I want you to take a moment and say to them in your mind, you're doing your best and I see you. And just sit with that for a moment, what it feels like to say that. See if you can imagine what it might feel like to say that to them, if that seems like a thing that might be helpful or healthy for the relationship. But if nothing else, sit with what it feels like internally to say that, to at least flirt with believing it. Maybe repeat it one last time. I know you're doing your best, and I see you. And now, I'd like you to imagine that loved one that you see standing in front of you, saying that same thing to you. Saying to you, you're doing your best, and I see you. What does that feel like? What thoughts arise when you hear that? What physical sensations or emotions? Again, having that loved one say to you, I know you're doing your best and I see you. And just take a moment to try and take that in. Even if you can't in a million years imagine that loved one saying it to you, hear it here. And know that it's true that you're doing your best. Whether they're ever able to verbally acknowledge that or not. So just stay there. Stay in that feeling for a moment. When you feel ready, you can go ahead and let that image of that person subside from your mind's eye. Maybe take two or three slow, deep breaths to help you come back into your body right now. To help cleanse you of whatever feelings this exercise may have brought up that you feel that you need to release or let go of. While also maybe holding on to some of it if you found it helpful, comforting, healing. But come back into your body. Deep breaths, maybe some stretches, whatever feels good and right to your body right now. Whenever you feel ready. You can go ahead and open your eyes. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group, 
simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.